Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and you know what, guys? Today, I'm checking off a, a massive bucket list item. When I first started putting this show together and began making a list of people I would want to interview, uh, this gentleman was one of the first names that I wrote down, well, typed into a spreadsheet, to be fair, which only makes sense. And uh, I'm very excited that uh, he was able to schedule some time with me. He's got a lot of stuff going on that's really cool. But he's one of those people that I feel like I've spent so much of my life with without even knowing had a huge impact on me, which we get to we get to talk about in the show. I talk about something that I've not uh, talked about on the show or talk about very much at all, actually. Um, But to give you kind of an idea, it was 1980 something. It could have even been 1980. I don't remember. But, you know, as you get older, all that stuff just kind of blurs together. But I remember for Christmas, my parents bought our our family a Texas Instruments 99 slash 4A computer. Um, That division of Texas Instruments had uh, kind of closed out. And in fact, it was all of a sudden really hard to get parts and things for it. We had one Texas Instruments office in Michigan. It was about 40 minutes away from where we lived. And I remember... Um, I got one of these games in the mail and the power cord on the, not the power cord, the uh, TV connector cord, which was this, you know, giant AB switch box thing, uh, went out. And I want to say the dog had knocked it out or something or pulled it and the cord had a short in it. So we had to get another one. So either I could have it mailed and wait a week and not play the game for another week after waiting so long for it to get there. Or we could go out to the office. So my dad and I went out. We got there five minutes before they closed because we hit a traffic jam. Paid the 30 bucks. I think it was $29.99 for for the AB switch and got home and just immediately loaded up the game. And that's all I did for the next, I think, week. I don't even remember which game it was. It might have been it might have been Ghost Town. I think it was Ghost Town. But in any case, uh, that's just how how crazy I was for these games. And when we first got the computer we got uh, as part of the gift was a cartridge and it was just, you know, it was was for the adventure games and we got the cassette recorder with it. And inside of the box with the cartridge was a cassette for a game called pirate adventures. So what you would do is you would put the cartridge in, you would uh, load the game in via cassette. I still remember all the sounds it made. It was somewhat similar in style to the sounds that the modems made in the nineties when, uh, when internet first became a thing. But uh, I I still remember specifically how it sounded in my head. I might even have it recorded somewhere. I'll have to check. But uh, loaded the game up and we started playing it. So basically what you get is you get a location. You get uh, it's all text only. Graphics came later. and We'll talk about that. But it's all text only. You get a description like you're in a room. There are exits to the east and west. In front of you is a tree uh, or a bush or, you know, a plant or whatever it is. And there are uh, then underneath of that, there's a line of visible objects that you can manipulate. Sometimes they're in the description and not listed as an object. So you have to really, you know, pay attention, play around, look really read what's in the text because that's where all the clues are to solve whatever the challenge of the game is. Sometimes it's collecting treasures. Sometimes it's uh, getting access to something. Sometimes it's, you know, freeing somebody from, uh, from a curse, whatever it is, you figure out, okay, this is the quest. Now I have to figure out how this world works. And then I have to figure out how to do whatever it is I need to do to solve all the problems and finish the game. 
And there are some that you get right away, and there are others that take weeks or months. Um, the very first adventure he put out, which was, I think, the second one I got was Adventureland. And that took me a year to solve. But I mean, I did other things as well. I was a young kid. I played music. I did all kinds of other stuff. But there was always that thing in the back of my head trying to solve these puzzles. So I spent a great deal of, deal of time uh, in my life doing that. And then, of course, uh, once I had done most of his games and then uh, Infocom, Infocom had come out with uh, a different style of the same type of games, uh, some I thought were not fair at all. There's a podcast called Eaten by a Gru. And they are actually going through every single Infocom game and playing it uh, from start to finish. And then they each do that on their own. And then they come back and they talk about things they like and don't like. I really like that they have a spoiler alert fence. So there's certain things that they talk about on the front end and they say, hey, everything after this has a potential spoiler alert. So you may not want to listen. Mark this place. Come to it after you finish the game or if you're stuck or whatever. Uh, very well done. Very entertaining podcast. They've now gone through all the text only adventures. They're on to the handful of graphic adventures that Infocom did. But there's a reviewer uh, Scott talks about that does uh, reviews of his games. I've got the links for every single one that he's reviewed that I was able to find. It looks like there are, I think, eight so far. And uh, there's a link in the show notes to each one of those. Very cool stuff. Links to all of Scott's uh, places that you can see his work, play his games, all that kind of stuff. Um, very, very fascinating, the career that he's had. And what's most amazing is that when he started doing this, he had to invent his own computer language to make this happen. And it wasn't like he just does what people do now and they can buy a program that helps you create an adventure. Um, I actually tried to do that when Joshua Note was on the show. We talked about this, or I think it was when I was on his show, The Note Show, we talked about it. Um, but I actually tried to create my own adventure game and I found it so difficult to do. Uh, I don't know that I could do it now, but I certainly couldn't then. Just trying to make sure that the puzzles are fair, that they're logical, that you're giving clues that make sense, that are there, but not giveaways. It's such a, a fine balance, you know, and uh, I, I was never able to create anything that I was happy with, even enough to get it to the point of giving it to somebody to, to check out and see what they thought. But I love the idea of it. I, I just love playing them. It's basically like reading a book where you're interactive. You don't create the world, but you get visuals of everything. If you're a visual thinker, you know, when you walk into a room, you'll picture it. You'll take the description that's there and you'll expand it into whatever you need to and visualize that room. And uh, it's pretty amazing. I've even had times where I, I've had uh, you know, aromas and things that I would expect in rooms in, in, at times. Um, very fascinating. But the the challenge was always just being logical, using my brain, trying to find ways within the uh, interface to describe what I was thinking, which is an additional challenge at times. But it's a lot. They're a lot of fun. And you can play most of those games for free right now. And the link is in the show notes. And um, and then there's some new ones that you can uh, purchase, which are fantastic. I'm working on Adventureland XL right now. And we talk a little bit about that game, um, doing a, a little bit of beta testing on that um, as well. The, the game is not quite finished yet. But it's available to play, and um, I found uh, a few things that I've sent over to Scott. Hopefully, they've been helpful. But it's it's just a lot of fun, and it's using muscles that we don't really use a lot anymore, which are our logistical problem-solving skills. I mean, for most things, we just Google it now, or we ask somebody. And you probably could Google the answer to a lot of these things, I would imagine. I know that the hit books are still available. Uh, he actually makes the hit book available on his website. But, you know, try and use your brain you know, let's, uh, let's work on those muscles because just like anything else, if we don't keep those muscles strong, they're not going to be tough when we need them to be. 
And there probably will be times in our lives where we do need to think about things from a more logical standpoint or problem solving or deduction reasoning, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, we're, we're kind of throwing away the skills to be able to do that well. So check the games out, play one. Um, I would say that Pirate Adventure would probably be a great starting point. It's, uh, it's not too dangerous, but it's got a lot of good elements there. Uh, Adventureland is good. There's a couple of tough puzzles in it. So I would probably say Pirate Adventure would be a good place to start. Um, Voodoo Castle is another one that uh, is one of my favorites that would probably be a good place to start. That's a little more complex than Pirate Adventure, but it, uh, it it's one of those that it's, it, it's, it's not incredibly challenging. It's got challenges in it, but it's not to the point where you'd have to walk away for a month and go, I have no idea what to do here. You know, there's a lot of good descriptions and a lot of good clues. They all have a lot of good clues, but this, this is a, a little more, I guess, uh, I would say an entry level game versus something like Savage Island or Golden Voyage, which I would definitely save for, for last because those games are very, very difficult. But uh, they're all a lot of fun um, but it, and frustrating, and I'll be honest about that, but there's fun in that kind of frustration. It's things, for me at least, that uh, pushed my limits of uh, trying things and trying different things and finding new ways to say the thing I was saying or trying to convey to uh, to find the the way that the computer would understand what I meant and uh, really just working those those brain muscles. So uh, check them out. They're great games. But honestly, just to get some time to sit down with Scott, um, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, I, I'm excited to bring you his interview. It's going to be broken up into a couple of parts with the new shorter format of the show. But let's just get into it right now because uh, we had a great conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, I am really excited to bring my guest on. This has been in the works for a while, and this man is somebody who has taken up a ridiculous amount of my life with his wonderful creations, and I'm actually very grateful for that. We're going to get into why. Let's bring him on. Scott Adams. Scott, how are you today? Doing well. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to discuss things with you. Well, thank you. I am too. And and I really want to start by by thanking you because... You have been someone who has had a very profound influence on my life. I have been playing your games since uh, since really I can remember. I started with a TI-99-4A computer and uh, the cassette tape. We got uh, Pirate Adventure. That's the one that came with the cartridge. And I just ate it up and everything after that. And uh, I, I just want to say, first off, thank you so much for giving me so much to enjoy in my life. Certainly my pleasure, and it's, it's just always blown me away when I start hearing from folks that have such great memories of my classic games and how much they meant to them. I, I had no idea at the time how God was using my gift, but he, he certainly uh, seemed to tickle the fancy of a lot of people, and for many of them it became life-changing. Certainly. But that's the beauty of it, isn't it? That It's something that you just wanted to do, and it just got out there and grew a life of its own, but it really came from just your passion of wanting to create something. Indeed. It was basically a gift God gave me, and I used it, and I had a lot of fun doing it. Sure. I want to be fair, though. They were not all fun moments. <laughs> <laughs> there were a, a lot of hours of frustration. Uh, when you and I connected a few years ago, uh, I had made a comment on your first game, Adventureland, which was not the first one I played, but the first one that, that you released. Uh, there was one particular puzzle that I it took me a year to solve, 
after all the other puzzles were done. But that's the beauty of it is that it's not something you had to master in one shot. You could really take some time, use your brain. And I don't think that we use our brains that much anymore. Sadly, that's probably the case. Uh, We've become a nation of uh, 10-second sound bites and uh, instant games that you can play in in a couple of minutes. Um, So there has definitely been changes. But for its time and for what our society was like when I wrote the games, it seemed to fit in very well. So that that doesn't mean there isn't still a market for this type of game and people that enjoy playing it. It's just that it's not as big as it used to be. I think this is, you know, through this uh, lockdown, I think it's really the perfect opportunity for people to give these things a try and see if they can use their brain to logically solve puzzles instead of just looking up an answer on the internet or trying to force their way through a game uh, however they can. These are really things that use our brains solely. They're not physical reactive games. They're not even, most of them are not even visual games. Can you kind of just give the audience an idea of what a text adventure is? Basically, you are given a description of a, of a place, um, and then the game simply asks you, what do you want to do? And it goes from there. In general, you will probably be spending a lot of time trying to solve puzzles to accomplish whatever the goal of the current game is, which can be different for each game. And a big part of it, too, is not just um, solving the goal, but in the way of solving that goal, it's also finding access to the things that you need. There's a lot of miniature puzzles inside of that big puzzle, whether it's collecting treasures, how to collect each one of them and get them safely to the storage space, or how to get uh, an object out of a room that might be too big to, to fit through the doorway. Uh, was there, when you first started working on Adventureland, I, I've not heard how you attacked it. Did you come up with a list of treasures first? Like, what was your, your process for designing that? Um, the way I would work, and certainly with Adventureland, it was kind of unique because I was developing my, la- my language that I wrote the game in. I was developing the interpreter that understood the language. I was developing the database that I was using for that language and the compiler for it. So it was a joint effort. I just, I just knew that I wanted something as big as possible, and I knew in a 16K space I was going to be very limited. So I had to be very, very clever fitting things together. Okay, so now I've got something going. The very first thing I had to come up with was a location. So I set up something called rooms, and I set up a location, and I said, okay, what, where am I? And I said, well, let's just start in a forest. That's easy. What's here? Trees. Okay. So now, now I've got a place. I've got uh, an item in there. Uh, what are the things a person might want to do with a tree? And I started putting those types of responses in to let the, the player uh, uh, manipulate things. And then I had to go somewhere because we weren't going to stay in a forest. I had to come up with another location. Um, and eventually, outside the forest, the main location, the first main location is the sunny meadow. And you get out there in the meadow, and I thought, okay, what would be a cool thing after coming out of this forest? And then I came up with, let's have a dragon. And then I thought, well, dragon, fighting, player get eaten, game's over real quick here. Let's make it a little more interesting. I know, a sleeping dragon. So I built it organically. I tacked on rooms first, and I thought about what might go with this, and then I tried to fit it into whatever the theme was that I was doing. 
Adventureland. You were just wandering around um, wherever you wanted to go, trying to discover treasures, and also trying to discover what to do with them once you had them. So it was, uh, once again, it was an organic growth that occurred. Well, and it, as if all this wasn't enough for you to take on in the first game, you also had a bit of a, a, a mind bender with a maze. And I thought that's pretty ambitious on top of everything else you were already doing. To put a maze in the game. Well, what I came from was having played uh, Colossal Caves. And in Colossal Caves, there was a maze, uh, a fairly large one, because this was running on a deck mainframe. And I thought, well, I need a way to get a little bit of a maze flavor into this game. And I want to make it look kind of unique, too, that ties in with the, the themes I'm going with. And so I had a maze of pits, as I'm sure you remember. Oh, yes. Easy to get in, not so easy to get out. Mm-hmm. Very true. Uh, it just it just was so ambitious. And to think that you were writing, you know, you had to write the language yourself. It wasn't like there was an adventure builder program at the time. Uh, some have come out since. But there was there really was nothing before you had Colossal Cave. And then you said, OK, I want to do this. And you really had to start from scratch. Yeah, I, I was working at Stromberg Carlson at the time um, and uh, as a programmer. And uh, when I mentioned this to some of my colleagues, the overall response I got was a lot of laughter saying you're not going to get a, a big game like Colossal Caves or anything like it on that little toy computer. Well, I love that you didn't cave into that. I, I, that. That really says a lot about your character. It seemed like a challenge. Sure. But, uh, but another part of that challenge, too, in, in kind of giving people an idea of how this, this really was at the time, the file size that you had to work with was something that we can't even send an email on now. I mean, the, <laughs> it, it's, it's really insane to think about what developers were doing back in the day. You look at Atari, which had a max of 4K to do all the music and the graphics and, and everything, and you were really limited because your game could only be so big. As the game, the entire game had to fit in a 16K memory space because that's what the uh, target machine had that I was writing it on, which was the Radio Shack uh, Model 1 Level 2. They had a Level 1 version of the computer, which didn't sell as well, thank goodness, because it was only 4K. That would have really been hard to uh, get anything meaningful in. But we would still be in the forest, <laughs> would be yeah, about it. Pretty much. So how did you come up with the idea of using the cartridge to utilize uh, the, the system to build out a bigger world? I'm not sure what you mean. Rocky. So I had the, the Texas Instruments 99 4A, and we had yeah. the cartridge that you would put in, and then you would load the game in via cassette. Okay, when we were setting up originally with uh, TI and discussing this, because they, they came to us and asked us to produce the game for, the, for them and that they would publish it. Uh, by this time in the industry, we were very well known, and we were getting uh, a lot of outside interest. For example, Marvel came to us, and that's an incredible story there. Uh, so TI, uh, we had already done uh, the VIC-20, and that was five games, and they came out on five individual cartridges uh, because the, the VIC-20 doesn't even have 16K. It had around 6K of memory. Okay? So when they originally came to me and said, we'd like to put your games on there, I said, well, that's not possible. You don't have enough memory in the machine. They said, well, what if we got it into a 16K cartridge? Um, 
Actually, they didn't have a 16K cartridge. I think it was 12K or 14K, something like that. But we were using a lot of the scratch, scratch pad memory of the main RAM. Anyway, back to TI. How are we going to do this? And that's where the idea came up with, well, cartridges are expensive. What if we just had one cartridge and then it read in the uh, games separately from a tape? And, oh, yeah, that would work. And then besides that, they also uh, wanted a special game just for their market, and that was the uh, Return to Pirates Island, uh, which was the world's first graphic adventure game in a cartridge on a home computer. That was cartridge only. I don't know if you ever got that or played it. I it did. Came out, you did. Okay, so you're aware of it. And that, that, was, that was an ongoing effort at the same time as getting the other games ready. Uh, which was fairly easy because the machine was powerful enough, had enough memory. So the getting the uh, current games as tapes wasn't as difficult as the new game and making it graphical at the same time. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing that, that you basically had technology created to make your game work instead of saying, okay, how can I make a game work with this technology? You really were the forerunner of that. Uh, another thing that you created out of thin air, there was there was a lot of firsts because the whole industry was just starting up. There, there people just didn't know what do we use these for, and these computers weren't my first uh, home computers either. These were the first appliance computers. That's what we called them back then. A, a home computer you didn't have to build yourself, um, and they were ready to go. And it's like, wow, this is really strange. An appliance computer buy it off the shelf and use it. Pretty uh, amazing at the time. I, I think back to, see, I got, I think I got my TI when the, when the, the fallout happened and they were like a hundred bucks a piece. And uh, yeah. that just seemed a great time to grab one. And they were pretty cool machines for the time. Oh yes, I still think they're kind of cool now. Yes. There, and there's a very large number of TI users groups on the web now mm -hmm. that, that keep the machine alive. And I think there's even people writing, new games and new software for them too so it's 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 quite quite the user base and of all the machines of the past that existed the only one that i currently have my own personal machine is a ti-99 really yeah that's it and just just because i wanted to be able to have my uh cartridge available mm -hmm. that, that that game cartridge because i was pretty proud of the effort that went in to create that thing sure now, as, as I recall, there were not a lot of computer stores where I was uh, growing up outside of Detroit. I remember one, but they didn't have your games. And so I had to send away to Europe. Now, we can d get anything just about instantly right now, right? But okay. back then, I had to save up and go to a bank and get an international money order, send away to, to Adventure International, wait four months for the game to get to me. I mean, it was really an exercise in patience, looking at that catalog every day, looking at the picture, reading the description, and just imagining <laughs> playing the game. It's, it's part of the package to me. And, and I think that people are missing out nowadays not having to exercise that patience and learn to wait and get excited about something. True. Once, once you've had something fast, you really don't want to wait. And I'm sure back then, if you could have cut the time, you would have. 
kidding. Absolutely. <laughs> if I could have paid expedited shipping or something, I would have done it. But you couldn't even track the packages internationally back. Um, but it was well worth the wait, every single one of them. And that's surprising you had to go international to pick that up. Once again, the, both the tapes and the cartridges, we did not produce or publish for the TI. That was done through TI's publishing department, and they ran off. I think what happened was they ran off all the, the uh, initial run. Then the company decided they were ditching the machine. They stopped any more production, and whatever inventory was available, they fire-sailed it. Right. So somehow somebody in Europe picked up a load of these, and that's why you ended up having to buy it from them. And that makes sense because that was post the end of that, that system. Um, yeah. But if it makes you feel any better, I can tell you that every time, you know, when you, when you build up that kind of anticipation, a lot of times the anticipation far outweighs what the experience ends up being because you've built it up too much. Yeah. But I can say with every one of your games that I had to wait for, every one of them was worth it. There was nothing that I felt let down by at any point. I'm very glad to hear that. An interesting thing is recently somebody here in the States has started uh, reviewing my classic games. Uh, but he's doing it uh, the old-fashioned way. He's, he's playing them on as close an emulator as possible. And then when he plays it and gets stuck, he doesn't go in uh, the Internet to find the solution. He just ponders it and sits on it and works through it. And he's still having fun, which is kind of amazing. I think he's done five or six of the games already. I have to check that out. It's, uh, I can send you a link later if you like. Yes, please. Um, there are a couple of guys that are doing that with the Infocom games. They've gone through every one of the uh, text-only adventures, and now they're doing the, the graphic ones. Very cool. Thinking, thinking in terms of other limitations was the uh, the the decision to have it be a two word parser was that because you couldn't build the database of uh, of questions to be any larger than it was it wasn't questions i've actually got my own language and it's out there um available now my understanding somebody even stuck it in one of the early builds of uh, uh linux uh it's called uh, uh scott free but anyway, in, in the system, the way I initially designed it was very similar to what Colossal Case did, verb noun. And trying to do anything more would just have taken more processing power and more memory. Both the database would have grown and the uh, uh, parser would have had to, to grow. So at the time, it wasn't going to fit in 16, 16K. Now that's kind of what I figured the, the situation was. Um, but either way, it works. I mean, I think the fact that you have a limited number of words really kind of makes your brain work a little bit harder to find the right combination of words to solve the puzzle because you can have the answer, but if it's not worded uh, in a way that the system will understand it, uh, yeah. that's part of where some of the frustration comes in. So that's another yeah. challenge as a player. Yeah, and unfortunately, it was also a challenge for me trying to give them enough vocabulary that it would work and give you enough synonyms for words that would also work. And to further cut down the size of the database, the uh, game does not have the entire word in there. Originally, Adventureland only had the uh, first three letters of each word, which is kind of interesting and makes for interesting gameplay, especially about a poor little bear in Adventureland. <laughs> I don't know if there's a story about that one. That was the one. <laughs> 
You know, I, I won't reveal the answer to that, but I'll just say that I, I came to the solution uh, after a year just by being frustrated and typed in a frustrated command. And that was the one that, that I was like, but once you get it, you're like, oh, now I see how that would have been the answer. I just didn't put it together. Okay. <laughs> As much as I thought it was an unfair puzzle at the time, it actually was not an unfair puzzle at all. I just didn't see that clue. But that really leads me to a question in the development is, did you decide how was, was the puzzle too difficult, not difficult enough? How did you decide what was fair and what wasn't? My poor beta testers. <laughs> that was another way the game grew organically. <clears throat> I would bring people in to play the game as it was, uh, incomplete, and see what they do with things. Mm -hmm. And I would see where they were getting stuck, where they would be trying things that I hadn't even thought of, and I thought, yeah, that is a logical solution, something to do with this. And so I would try to merge in as much of that beta test playing into the game as possible. So in effect, I wrote about 70% of the game, and 30% I used beta testers to flesh it out. That's really smart. I mean, you're, you're only going to think of what you're going to think of. Right. And I wanted as many different ways to tackle things and do things as possible. And yet still, it doesn't cover everything. How, how, now, you've revamped uh, Adventureland into Adventureland XL, which I am working on right now. Um, I, I find it fascinating, the inter integration of music and a little bit of visual, nothing that is detracting from the game. But uh, it, it really adds a nice layer to it. If you had been able to add those elements back when you started, would you have done it, or do you think you would have kept it as text? Well, in a 16 game, it would have certainly been impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, we started doing something like that when Apple came out, and you had a, a more memory, a larger memory space, and also a, a decent uh, way to to put pictures out on the screen. Um, Pictures are problematic. Yes, they're nice, and yes, you like having them, but people still draw visual clues from them. And also many people, when they first saw a graphic version of one of my games, went and played it, and they would always respond back to me, but that's not how I saw it. Because they already had a preconceived notion of what they were looking at. And the pictures just didn't do it justice. Well, I think it's kind of like turning a novel into a movie. You know, whatever you picture in the novel, they're not going to be able to recreate in the movie the same way each individual's imagination works. Also, if you look at the screenplay of a movie, it is a tiny little folder compared to a giant book that it came from. A lot has to be sacrificed. Very, very true. Well, they yeah. do say picture's worth a thousand words. So just seeing things, it doesn't have to be described. But that was one of the nice things about the classic games that I did. I tried to use places and items that people could visualize, that they were familiar with. Um, I did have people come back much later say, well, I remember playing your game when I was younger, and I just tried it now 30 years later, and I remember this vivid forest. I remember the leaves falling and the trees and the sandy path. And, and then I go in and look at the game and it says, you're in the forest. Visible items are trees. And that's it. Like, wow. The picture it painted in my mind 
lasted all these years. What's interesting uh, on that note to me is that as I've gone back over the years and replayed some of the games, because fortunately I don't remember all of the solutions, so I get to solve them again. Okay. Um, but even like take Ghost Town, for example, I remember exactly what I pictured when I first entered the stable. I remembered what I pictured when I first saw Old Paint. Um, all of those things, like those visuals have stuck with me and they just immediately come back when I enter those rooms in the games now. Isn't that amazing? It is. I think you gave us enough of a description for our minds to be able to paint the, that picture, but not too much where it was painted for us. And I think that was part of the beauty of it. Yes. I, 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 it was amazing how it, it worked with, with uh, folks. Because in effect, I was writing first grade primers and people saw uh, Tolstoy. Yeah. Um. And as if, as if all these challenges weren't enough, you also had to take your language and make it fit all the different machines that were out at the time so that you could release different versions. How did you tackle that? By re, just rewriting the interpreter. The, the, the language compiled down to a, a run set, and then I had to have an interpreter to run, run that. Um, and most of the machines of the day were either 6502 or 8080Z80 based. So, so once I did a conversion of the interpreter to uh, 8080, then I could hit all the Z80 machines and all, and all the similar ones and just having to change the input and output because most of them, as you mentioned, there's no graphics, there's no sound. All I really needed was ability to uh, read the game in, ability to do a save game and read the save game, somehow write to the screen and read the keyboard. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But still, that's, it, it, it had to be a challenge to be able to find the time to do that. It was. And I, I put the games on a lot of different machines that people probably have never even heard of. Uh, Exidy Sorcerer comes to mind. They've probably never heard of it. But I've it was, never heard of that. It came out at the time. I think that one was a Z80 based. Um, uh, we got a machine, and so we put the games on it. Wow! Basically, I did. I did all, most most of all the translations. I did. It's just so impressive how much you had to do to make these seemingly simple games become a reality for so many people. But I, yeah. I, and I, and again, I can't thank you enough for putting all that effort in because. I, I, I can't even count the hours that I've enjoyed slash been frustrated, but loved every minute of it. That's good. Where, where did the decision come to release the hint book? Um, getting tired of answering phone calls. Hmm. <laughs> really. Uh, people, the calls first, uh, locally, uh, when selling it, people start asking questions. And then once the company was more established and we're selling all over the country, we actually started getting phone calls in for hints and realized very early on, this isn't going to work. People are getting stuck in pretty much the same places because there, there are a certain number of puzzles in the game. And so I came up with the idea first of a hint sheet because this was for the first couple of games. So I wanted to give them hints to the game, but I didn't want to ruin the game for them. And that's, took me a while to figure out how am I going to do this. And what came out of it was uh, my uh, numeric dictionary, which 
to, to describe it to folks, basically there'd be a question. It says it might say something like, uh, "Are you stuck on the dragon?" Okay, that that would be the question in clear English. And then underneath there'd be three answers, one, two, and three. But they were instead of words, they were just a bunch of numbers. You'd take the number, you'd go down to the end of the hand sheet, and you'd find the word that that number represents and write it down. And so you'd have to write out the hint. That way you don't accidentally read ahead too far because the hints would slowly give you information uh, with the final hint going more towards uh, an ultimate solution you were really stuck. The wording of it was very careful, very basic, so that you didn't give anything away other than to know maybe if people looked ahead, oh, there's going to be a challenge with this. Um, but you can't avoid that. There's only so much you can do. But sometimes three answers weren't enough, and you would go to six. <laughs> I did what had to be done to to let them slowly get to that aha moment. If you had to read the final solution to a puzzle, you didn't get the aha moment, and you didn't get the thrill. True. The whole thrill of the game is, I did it. Wow, I just figured this out. The sense of accomplishment in this in these games are amazing, especially on some of the more difficult, even just surviving a maze when you finally get out of it and then you understand how it worked. Maybe you mapped it out because I spent a lot of time making physical maps. Um, yeah. Those would be some of the best moments in the game was just getting past some of the individual puzzles. The Finally so solving the entire game um, was, a, I, I can't even explain it. <laughs> A very good feeling. Yes, very much so. I wanted to ask you, uh, is there any challenges in your life because you share a name with the artist that drew Dilbert? That's a, that's a very interesting question. Back at the dawn of the Internet, uh, back in the let's see, late 80s, early 90s, I got an email when emails were starting to become popular. And it was from Scott Adams of Dilbert. I remember his, his email at that time because he was using AOL. So it was scottadams at AOL.com. And he said, I've been trying to find you forever. I've been getting all this fan mail from people say that they've loved my game since they were a kid. And I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and I have been trying to find you. And I said, you know, this is really funny because I've actually got a bunch of emails from people saying how much they love my comics. <laughs> And so we exchanged these these slew of emails over the internet back and forth to get back in sync with each other. Wow. Did you guys ever discuss doing a, an adventure based on Dilbert? Nope, no, that never came up. Um, that could have been interesting. I don't know how well that would have worked because they're really, you know, kind of one-liners. Yes, they are. Um, I remember at one time having a good discussion with David Gerald about potentially doing uh, something cooperative, but... Oh, we never did get it, that off the ground. Uh, David Gerald was the guy who did Trouble with Tribbles for Star Trek. That's and right. And a bunch of other mm -hmm. Wow. Very fascinating story. I love that. Yeah. I also remember the time, uh, uh, I think it was Michael Cousteau came over to visit with the potential of doing something for the Cousteau Society. Uh, and that, that, was, that was a very memorable visit, too. Unfortunately, nothing worked out there. Seems so random. Yes. <laughs> well, that is one thing that you never tackled was the sea. Was the what? Sea going, you know, having like a game in the ocean. Right, underwater. Mm -hmm. um, also, I remember a time that I 
got invited to Harlan Ellison's 50th birthday party and got to meet a slew of luminaries there. It was a very small group of people because this was a surprise party for Harlan. Isaac Asimov showed up. Uh, George Takai showed up. Um, oh, a couple of others that uh, names were escaping me. But amazing number of creative people out there. Well, for those of you who thinks that Scott just sits in his basement playing on a computer, obviously his life is far more colorful than that. Yes. And also I like to uh, travel. We've got uh, my wife and I, we have a trailer and we try to get around the country and uh, see different sites. Uh, love the, we've gone out east, out west, uh, south and north. So we never know where we're going to be heading. That makes it and, fun though. If uh, you want to learn more about Adventure International, we have a web page. Uh, my old web page is msadams.com, but also on Facebook, there's an Adventure International uh, uh, fan page, too. People okay. can, can take a look at that. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you, because you had mentioned this um, earlier, the, uh, the connection with Marvel. How did Marvel come to contact you? Um, they either wrote or called. They probably called. I think the receptionist came and talked to me. Um, they were they were um, interested in expanding their brand. Uh, Joe Calamari, who was the vice president of uh, uh, the comic book and merchandising, had been doing a lot of uh, outside merchandising. There were uh, hard regular games, box games, there were um, dolls, there were toys, um, and he saw that the nascent computer market was starting to take off and decided he wanted to get Marvel involved. And from the story that he gave me, he said he basically asked a number of people, what company should I contact to make a game with Marvel characters? And he said everybody he talked to said Adventure International. And that, that, that's kind of stunning because uh, there were a number of other companies around by this time. So he did. He contacted us. I flew up to New York, uh, went to Manhattan, went to Marvel offices, met with Joe. I also met with Jim Shooter, who was the editor at the time, Byrne, and a bunch of others. And it just it was an amazing experience. And basically what they said was, you know how to make computer games. We know how to make these Marvel characters. We're going to leave the control of what you do to you. Do whatever you want. And uh, our only thing is we're going to want to vet any artwork. You can do the artwork, but we have to agree that it is Marvel, uh, which they did. At the same time, they came, up, they came up with the idea that with each game, there was going to be a dedicated comic book. And I got to write the comic books. So I'm also a Marvel author. <laughs> wow. Um, and at the same time, uh, I was I was aware of Marvel, been reading them since I was a kid, but I didn't know everything about Marvel. I said, I wish there was a way I could understand your Marvel Universe better. They said, funny, you should say that. We're about to come out with the Marvel Universe Encyclopedia. It's not out yet, but we can give you a pre-publication of it. I read that cover to cover and used that in, in basing my games and decisions. Um, and it, it was a lot of fun. From what I understand... I've been told that I am the only Marvel game writer who has introduced new characters in uh, the games 
that then became part of the Marvel canon. So some of the characters I introduced now are, are part of Marvel, Mar- the Marvel Universe, and they have their, their own history. Amazing. But they, they wanted to vet the artwork, but they didn't want to approve the game itself to make sure that it's... Well, they would, yeah. Oh, okay. They would, they would approve it, but they, they never said anything. It was basically, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Wow. Oh, yeah, we're having fun with this. So the, there was never any editorial comment. So... They contact you and they say, we want you to write a game. What was that? I mean, how did that feel for you? That was, that was great. Yeah, <laughs> it really was. I love Marvel. Um, comic books, science fiction. They, they, I had loved them since a kid. And to be able to, to work with Marvel. When I first came up with uh, what I was going to do for the first character, I told them, okay, I'm going to do the Hulk. And I remember Joe saying, the Hulk? Wait a minute. Are you sure? You know, Spider-Man's sort of our best-selling character. I said, mm-hmm. yes, I know that. That's why I want to do the Hulk. Because I want to ease myself into this series. Because we agreed on doing 12, 12 comics and 12 games. Oh. And I said, I want to get things wrong with the Hulk and get, so I can get them right with Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, okay, that sounds pretty good. And I'm glad I did it that way. The Hulk was an okay game. Spider-Man, I think, for myself, for what I was working with, was really good. I had a lot of fun doing that. I, it fit the Marvel Universe, and I was able to get a lot of uh, fun play into it, which I wouldn't have done if I hadn't made the mistakes with Hulk. Oh, sure. One more thing. Spider-Man was the first one that had the multi-word parser in it, too. Oh, that's right. So, again, and I had been developing that parser, and it wasn't ready for the Hulk. So that was also another reason I was saying I wanted to use the, the newer interpreter and parser that I was coming up with. I'm sorry, I had cut you off. Oh, Go no, I, I was going to say, uh, it, from the, uh, the the player's side who was not familiar, I mean, I, I knew the characters, but I didn't know their abilities and all of that. Um, I found those games to be very fun. Um, the, uh, the, thing in, the thing in Torch was a little tough because I didn't know when I should be which character, when I should switch. Yes. Um, but I thought the, the games were very enjoyable for someone even outside of that universe. Every time I wrote an adventure game, I tried to do something different I had never done in a previous game. The, the Fantastic Four, where you're playing Human Torch and The Thing, I, as far as I know, is the first adventure game where you get to play two characters. Mm-hmm. And you could switch back and forth at any time to play either character. Now, there were supposed to be 12 games. What happened after Spider-Man? Uh, we went out of business. The same time that TI started crashing is the, um, uh, the whole industry took a nosedive. We were self-financed. We had no outside financing whatsoever. We were closely held. We weren't, uh, we weren't uh, big enough with deep enough pockets to weather storm. That's such a shame. Yeah, just uh, so many amazing moments in his life. And what a pioneer of the computing age he's been and continues to be. And I really like that. I love 
that he's still creating things for us to enjoy. Obviously, I have a very personal relationship with his work, and it's it's meant a lot to me. And you'll hear more about that when we get to part two coming up soon. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining me for this very special episode. It, it means a lot to me. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Please make sure to rate the show on Apple Podcasts and iTunes and uh, you know, throw a like on an episode on Podbean or wherever you're listening if you like it. Some of those I actually do get to see, which makes me very happy. And we'll see you guys next week for another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. Podcast.